0: Tyler, I'm Danny, and this is episode 49 of Fried Squirms, where we get stoned and talk about horror movies, and we
1: enjoy every minute
0: of it, all the minutes, especially when I get such a little treat as this, episode 49, before the big 5 yes, which we're sort of celebrating as like a big milestone, because we couldn't decide when else to celebrate.
1: Yeah, we figured it was a good landmark right now for us in our recording, so... If we yeah. would have
0: done, like, the actual, like, year episode, it would have been a weird number.
1: It would have been. It would have been an odd number. And neither of us
0: felt good about that. No. So we figured 50 it's is a milestone. in between, like, the 47 that our actual year would have been. Right. And 52, which, if we were really good at being <laughs> a weekly podcast... Yeah then you know 52 weeks in a year 52 would be our year
1: and that would have made sense had we fulfilled that
0: i mean we can talk about this more next episode but when we started we were actually going bi-weekly, and then we've had to miss episodes here and there so right
1: i mean life gets in the way it happens
0: so we're going to celebrate 50 and past i don't know a month and a half we had decided that there were things that we needed to, to at least talk hit yeah hit upon before we hit 50 to sort of feel good about ourselves and this was one I'd felt guilty about for a while because I know that you love giallos, <laughs> and the Italian horror masters, especially master in this case. Oh yes. And we had somehow not done a Dario Argento film yet, which is a matter of time. Had never seen a Dario Argento film all the way through yet, so this week we're talking about opera.
1: Yeah, dude, and I'm super excited for obvious reasons, and and several reasons, including the fact that this is your first Argento film all the way through, so we get to uh, kind of initiate you in a little bit. So, I'm still kind of fresh off watching it. This week
0: I did come a little bit less prepared than normal. No um, worries. Due to a uh, rather relaxing weekend. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Uh (laughs) Ain't nothing wrong with that, you know? You had a good time? Um, So I'm fresh off watching it, though, and I really want to get to the squeals, so... We're doing Dario Argento's opera. Yes. This is Fried Squirms. We talk about horror, because who knows, maybe this is your first episode.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, th- thinking about that, too, I mean, we're just coming off of Thanksgiving as well, so, you know, we're a little hungover from that as well. Right. You know, a lot of work, a lot of food. A lot of bread pudding. Yeah, dude. Mm, I made some dank bread pudding. I'll tell you what. So. I made some really good mushroom gravy. I'd suggest people check out uh, Lion's Mane mushrooms. Really good. I had some shiitake mushrooms. Nothing psychedelic, but they're yummy as fuck. And I suggest quadrupling the butter in your own fucking recipes. Paula Dean, be proud. <laughs> it was more than that.
0: I did more to it than that, but...
1: No, That's cool, man. Yeah, I had a good time, but... Some good shit. An yeah. other news, maybe? I'm almost caught up to season one of Preacher, so I'm excited about getting to talk to you about that once I get into season two.
0: Oh yeah, maybe not quite horror-related, but there no. is a vampire
1: in it, so... Yeah, a little, a little bit. Yeah. It has a, a little bit of an element to that, but I mean, its I like it. It's a good show. Yeah, it's a fucking great show, as is The Punisher, which is what I just got done
0: watching. Nice. So, I yeah, I recommend check, that check both those out. Just because it's really good. Let's get into the Guts and Bolts. You ready? And talk about the people that made this movie and yeah. all that sort of good shit. Guts and Bolts. Yeah.
1: Guts and Bolts.
0: All right, Guts and Bolts. Yeah,
1: you know what? We all up in them. You're definitely going to take the lead
0: on this one, because I know that these are the people... These are my babies. Yeah. I was going to say, and you shoot your babies just thinking about
1: this. Oh, you know I love my babies. Yeah, so I guess a, a quick interlude. I know we want to give a synopsis. That's usually how we lead off with this. Oh, yeah, okay,
0: synopsis. Good point.
1: So I would say this is a tale of an opera singer who gets a lead in Verdi's Macbeth, and along with the superstition of... It brings bad luck. That's what it's traditionally known for doing. A series of events take off with a killer who becomes obsessed with the soprano.
0: Yeah, I was going to say an opera singer is tormented by a masked killer.
1: Yeah. Argento is known for using like the POV shot from the killer's point of view, of course. So this film is no exception, and I think it does a really good job of, of that. But yeah, I think that's a pretty good synopsis of what this film is about. Shot in 1987, mostly in uh, Parma, Italy. Speaking of Argento, I guess we can jump right into it. The fact that he's the director, he's the writer, and he is the producer of this film. And that's going to also be like your
0: biggest pull into this movie. Oh, without a doubt.
1: I mean, if you're familiar with the Italian horror directors, even uh, Giallo, which is yellow in Italian. And during, I think around the 50s, 60s.
0: I was going to say, this is is the one thing that I can comment on as far as this style goes. You've definitely seen more. But I know a little bit of the history for Giallo itself because of how much I love exploitation films. Exploitation films, of course, you can take their route back into like the Pulp Fiction, Weird Fiction, and such. And part of Pulp Fiction was the Italian Giallo novels called Giallo Yellow because they were printed with yellow covers. Exactly. They were like these weird detective novels, but they still sort of followed the pulp format of the time, to an extent. Yeah,
1: and that was a way, too, to separate their type of novels from the rest of the catalog and libraries or bookstores, etc. Yeah, so they became infamous for that. By the way, these pulp fiction,
0: weird fiction books... Are what were derived from Penny Dreadfuls yes, earlier, are. and we're probably going to talk about Penny Dreadful at some point in the future.
1: I have uh, a lot of ideas about that show, both good and bad. But uh, yeah, it, it is an interesting, I guess, progression through mysteries and crimes and pulp fictions, etc mm-hmm. Yeah, and granting their entry into it, like so with the uh, the novel format and in, into the uh, cinema format, you got a lot of the Italians, of course, who jumped on board. And Argento, he kind of got involved, not necessarily with Giallo's first. He was a writer on Once Upon a Time in the West. So he got his entry when he was like 20 years old. And then from there, he was more introduced into the Giallo format. I think his uh, debut was in 1970 with The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. And... Argento is also known for using certain themes in his movies. Started off doing animal themed movies like The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, Cat of Nine Tells, Four Flies on Grey Velvet was the other one. Then he did The Witches with Suspiria, Mother of Tears was his final one. And, you know, so he used certain themes in this. But he was known for, like I said, using that POV shot from the killer, and he liked to use black gloves and hooded characters which lent more to that thriller mystery side of it. So going along I guess you know throughout the progression of his films and up to this point he had mentioned that he considered directing an opera. He wanted to do Rigoletto, which is another one of Verde's operas, but they would not let him design the stage. Mm-hmm. And so he's like no, I don't want to do it if I can't give my own flair. He still wanted to follow the, you know, format, but long story short, this film mostly is a semi-autobiographical story told through that director in the film right. of Argento. So that's kind of a reflection of what he was going through there during that time period. I kind of got involved with Argento in the early 2000s. I wrote a little bit about it when I went and seen Suspiria and wrote that little blog about it. That's right, which you can check out on yeah. our website, yeah. www.frightsworms.com. <laughs> exactly, but... This is a big up to Best Buy because this is during a time period where they were releasing some really cool shit as far as DVDs, horror films, just any kind of collectibles. And they were selling a series of Argento films, mostly through, I think, Blue Underground and Anchor Bay were the, th- the two big ones that I'm familiar with. And for me, I jumped all over that shit, you know, because it's like, I don't know how often I'll see this. And they were pretty cheap, like 20 bucks for the box sets, like the numbered ones. Mm-hmm. And anyhow, I got a hold of Opera, watched it, I was like, whoa, this film is fucking... It's dope, it's, it, especially if you're familiar with the format, right, the Giallo format. It makes a lot more sense. It's not a straightforward horror film. It kind of crosses over a little bit. Something just to talk about the fact that, like, Giallo films have their root
0: in the Giallo novels. Well, short stories, most right, of them. Right. I, I think you'd probably be closer i'm not sure exactly i've never actually read any i'm just familiar yeah with the they're i mean they're
1: not like so. big books you know what i mean
0: but with standard pulp fiction of that era a lot of the pull-in was it was serialized in some way and so you had to have an action beat every so often yep. no matter kind of how ridiculous or not yeah it's like it a, is a way to, to pick the pace up beat in there yeah But because it was usually that this one story was told over 10 volumes. So you had to have an action beat in each volume, no matter how ridiculous it is. And there's little traces of that even in this.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure.
0: And actually, that's one of the things that Penny Dreadful does fucking fantastically. I want to point out just because I keep. Going back to that because it no, I mean, history, it, it's John's. Yeah, for sure.
1: So, when I was getting involved with Argento, you know, Suspiria, of course, was one of the big ones, Opera being one of the big ones. And I'll mention one more because he's known for, I mean, he's got some, some several films, but Phenomena, which has Jennifer Conley in it. Yeah, it's really good, man. It's interesting. But that was kind of my entry into it, and then over the years, of course, I kind of stuck with it. got more involved with other film directors in the Italian variety, like Lucio Fulci, he's more known for his horror, Mario and Lamberto Bava. You know, they're known for their horror films from, like, the 50s all the way up through the 90s, I suppose. And then Sergio Martino was another one, big one, actually, for giallos, like, straight giallo, crime mysteries, thrillers, etc. Mm-hmm. So I got really familiar in the early 2000s all the way up until now. So I enjoy them, man. They're fun. They can be a little over-the-top, a little cheesy at times, but they're still entertaining.
0: I'm going to hold back right now because this is still just the guts and bolts, but I enjoyed the fuck out of this, partially because of my love of like things rooted in pulp fiction and
1: weird fiction so yeah nice man okay so that was my little t- on argento he's still alive still making films he even did two episodes with masters of horror which we've covered uh, with imprint on the, right with the and
0: now i'm really uh we're gonna have to cover argento's he did two jennifer point. and
1: pelts they're both really good i think i prefer pelts a little bit it's fucked up has uh meatloaf in it oh sweet yeah
0: it's pretty good Dope. See, that way we
1: don't have to do Rocky Horror to get our meatloaf (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Which I just picked up actually at a pawn shop recently. Did you? Yeah, I did.
0: I love the first half.
1: It's hit or miss for, for me with like rock operas or just musicals in general. I enjoy it. You know, it has its merits, of course. But, no, there's fucking amazing things about it, though. That's for sure. Anyway, not to get too off topic. No, no worries, man. I did mention that Argento is one of the writers. He did the screenplay and the story. But Franco Farini helped with the story, and he was known also for writing Once Upon a Time in America. Two films I really do enjoy. This is um, director Michel Soive he actually has a bit part in this film I'll talk about in a little bit, but he wrote Demons 1 and 2, great fucking Italian horror for the mid-'80s. He also helped write The Church and one of Argento films, Trauma, So, you know, he's known for doing a lot of writing for mostly giallo and horror film directors. Our cinematographer for this film was Ronnie Taylor. And this is kind of a really cool story I'll mention real briefly. Taylor, at the time, in the 80s, was working for an Italian firm in Milan, and he was doing a lot of commercials. They had sent him to Australia to help uh, be the the director of photography for Argento's commercial for Fiat. It was a Fiat Chroma Sport. It was like a 1987 commercial. But he talked about what was really challenging, and I saw the commercial because it's a part of like the making of opera, and you can see like the techniques he's using for that commercial incorporated into this film. Okay. So that's their initial collaboration, but this is their first film together. And Ronnie Taylor, we talked about being the DP, but he was a photographer, uh, one of the photographers on Tommy.
0: I the Who's Tommy love Tommy. Oh, yeah. I taped Tommy off of VH1 when they aired it as a special. <laughs> awesome. Uh, and it was awesome because then in high school, my choir teacher and my band teacher both knew that I had it. <laughs> That's fucking awesome. So on days when it was like they knew that they were going to have to, like, go out of town or something and it was just going to be a sub and they wanted it to be, like, just like a movie day, nice. they'd be like, hey, like, I have to go out of town next weekend. I have a sub coming in. Like. <laughs> you want to bring do in this. Tommy? <laughs> Heck yeah. <laughs> yes. Like, I have the
1: coolest teachers. <laughs> that's awesome, dude. That's a tie back for you, so that's really cool. But yeah, he was uh, one of the photographers on Tommy. He was a DP for Ben Kingsley's Gandhi. Oh, wow. Yeah, huge film. Involves an actor I'll mention here in a little bit. He was a DP on the movie Sea of Love, the horror film Popcorn, The Phantom of the Opera with Julian Sands, I believe. And Sleepless, which is a... Not Julian under-
0: Sands' warlock.
1: Oh, yes, yes. Argento actually did a version of A Phantom of the Opera and Dracula. I
0: think it was Dracula 3D.
1: Not his most proud film. Some of his more recent films are—I mean, they're all right, but they don't compare to like his '60s, '70s, and '80s films.
0: I'd be curious to watch his Phantom of the Opera. After watching this, I might go into it more later. But I felt like there were things that he touched on that were Phantom of the
1: Opera. E. Yeah, he was inspired by Phantom of the Opera for sure with this mm-hmm. film. Yeah, so that was Ronnie Taylor, and Ronnie Taylor really cool man. I was listening to some of his commentary. Some of his techniques, I'll mention a little bit. Interesting cinematographer. Uh, Our editor is Franco Fredicelli. He is known for mostly doing all of Argento's films. I don't have to go too in-depth with them, but he also did editing work for Cemetery Man, which is a really interesting cultish Italian film in the Mm -hmm. 90s. And he also worked on Demons 1 and 2. Really cool films. We've got a lot of musicians on this film. I'll start with Claudio Simonetti, because he scored a lot of films for Argento. He was also the main keyboardist in the Italian progressive rock band Goblin. So for those who are familiar with Argento films, Goblin scores a lot of his films like Suspiria. But Claudio Simonetti worked on the main theme for this and he said he wanted to use a contrasting like piece of music to go along with the violence of this film. Mm -hmm. So he said, when you listen to the opening theme by itself, it's kind of a peaceful, serene kind of melody, you know? Mm -hmm. Anywho, Brian Eno and Roger Eno did some of the tracks on this, and I know Brian Eno mostly for being the keyboardist in Roxy Music. Which I love, Roxy Music. They're kind of a glam rock band from the '70s.
0: See, I know him because he's just been a giant producer as well for a long time. Yes, he has. Doing acts for sure, as like Devo, I we believe Talking Devo. Heads. Yeah, he sure did. Um, but I think even in later years, I think he's produced for like U2 and like a bunch of other people. Like plus putting out like his own music from time to time. Oh yeah. Uh, I'll be honest. I've never sat down like got down to a shit before, but. I have now to I say have this. To shot, so.
1: I'd, I'd be a little bit remiss if I don't mention this because there's a lot of my friends in South Carolina. One of my friends, Sean, I'll give a big shout out to real quick. Really dig Brian Eno. And he, after he left Roxy Music, he did his own music, his own career. And he was known for kind of creating the ambient music genre. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of his first albums is like Music for Airports. And then he kind of themed them around certain places that you would listen to that sort of music. It's really interesting, man. But they were really, like I so really peaceful, nice melodies.
0: You know what? While we're talking about music, it's now a couple of weeks past, but I just wanted to shout out into the echo again. Yeah. We just had Riley on, but they also did like a live broadcast the other. They day. They sure did. That was cool. When I first got on and they noticed me on, they they gave us awesome, nice shout outs. So I just want to be like. Hey, guys, maybe we could cross over and you could teach us about Tech Brian Eno. Tag team!
1: <laughs> yeah. You could
0: teach us about Brian Eno. I'm sure you guys know about Brian Eno because you're a music podcast. So, people out there, if you like music, we're buddies with another podcast, Into the Echo. Yeah, we're familiar Check with music. Out. They like music. We like music. We like Riley. He was on The Shining episode. Yeah. Our Shining great episode. time. That was a great episode. That was one of the most fun times I've had on the show so far. Go listen to it, please. Yeah. Uh, anyway, moving <laughs> on.
1: <laughs> no, that's really cool, but... Brian Eno and Roger Eno brothers, they both did a couple of tracks on this. Still Grave did a lot of the metal soundtrack on this. That film.
0: was dope. That surprised the shit out of me. Still Grave, mm-hmm. you said?
1: Yeah, Still Grave. Like I said, so for the metal tracks, I believe it was mostly Still Grave, and I'm not sure if Claudio Simonetti, I think he worked with them. And uh, anyhow, Argento. Is known for being like a big collaborator with the music in his films. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, he said that during that time period in the '80s, like he really liked metal, and he wanted an unknown metal band to be included in this film particularly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, still grave. And uh, Bill Wyman is another big name. And for people who are familiar, he was the original bassist in the Rolling Stones.
0: Bam, bam, the Rolling fucking Stones.
1: Yeah. So Bill Wyman. After he had split with the Stones, I want to say like in the 80s, he started doing his own music, of course, and he was known for scoring soundtracks, and this being no exception. So he did a few tracks on this film as well. Like I said, some really interesting shit I didn't know prior to actually technically reviewing this film. Mm
0: Mm-hmm yeah shit what else do we got okay um before we're we're out of the i know jesus i'm like itching to okay
1: i'll i'll move move a little bit quicker Uh, no it's
0: okay let's let's i mean i want to hear about these folks it's just that ooh, i i just don't know what else we have because this really isn't my no worries my knowledge base but oh my god this was a sweet movie so yeah (laughs) all
1: right our special effects team mostly was done by germano natalie company he was our key special effects person on this. There's hey,
0: a, Germano. Hey, Germano.
1: There's two other guys I'll mention. There's our key makeup artist and our animatronics person on this film. we will mention those guys in a little bit. Our producers, I did mention Argento. There's Ferdinando Caputo. He's our executive producer. Mario Vittori Gori, they're co-producers on this film. Production companies are ADC Films, the uh, Chucky Gori Group, Tiger Cinematografica. And Rai Radio Televisione Italiana and our distributors. There's several of them. Orion Classics. Actually, we talked about Orion with The Shining, right? Bam! Orion back at it again. That's dope. Yeah. So they helped with the '91, uh, 1991. That is USA theatrical release. Now didn't
0: they make them cut some?
1: They wanted them to cut a particular sequence actually out of this film. So we're not going to talk about. Yet, not quite but... yet, but Argento told them no because he was inspired by an author who we actually covered three weeks of thomas oh, harris right.
0: oh they he because they want okay to cut the end
1: right yep okay okay so argento was inspired by thomas harris's red dragon so if you're familiar with the red dragon maybe that'll make more sense the ending i suppose
0: Honestly, it actually makes the ending Red Dragon make more sense too. That's cool. Now that since I've, I read the book pretty recently,
1: Argento wasn't really pleased with Michael Mann's Manhunter, so that yeah, was kind of like his. I
0: love that movie because yeah, Intigata Vita used to the best effect <laughs> ever.
1: It's pretty dope, man. Campagna Distribuzione Internazionale is the uh, Italian theatrical distributor for this film. They're the ones that helped release it in Italy. Um, there's a really interesting number attached to the ticket sales. I'll mention here in a minute because of that. J. Arthur Rank Film Distributors, they help with the 1990 United Kingdom theatrical release. And I didn't mention uh, Anchor Bay. I've got their 2001 DVD release. The budget for this film is $8 million. The admissions in Italy as of 1988.
0: See, I love it. We've talked about this before. Yeah, this is, gives you a better idea. Rather than
1: numbers. Numbers, yeah, because they can be skewed with large audiences, right?
0: Over time, it can also be really hard to compare without adjusting for inflation. That's a good and, point um, as well. I like admissions. I wish they should buy admissions more.
1: That would be a lot more interesting. I wish they just numbers. showed it more.
0: Like, I, I don't want it to be the main way. Like, right, There's still right. a, a time and a place to look like, at box office and stuff. Uh, especially if you're trying to determine whether it was financially a hit, but there's also something to be said about
1: people who want to go see the film.
0: fucking filled up the goddamn theaters. I
1: think that's a great point. Yeah, This is a really big number, which is really cool, too. This is one of his most successful box office numbers. Uh, it drew in 1,363,912 audience members in Italy as of 1988. And that's just in Italy alone, so it was a, a big hit in Italy. Release date officially was December 19th, 1987 in Italy. September 1989 at the Toronto International Film Festival in Canada. And it got never its forget. premiere. Never forget day. Uh, never forget that January 1st, 1991 to kick off the new year, it was released here in the States. Oh. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, you know I like my taglines, right? Taglines. There's line. two. I've got two for this film. Okay. Alright, the first one is you. Obsession, Murder, Madness, That's the first one. The second one, I think, is a little bit more appropriately titled, A Star is Born Tonight, Will She Live to See Tomorrow? Ooh,
0: yeah, I like that one more. The first one's still pretty good, though. Yeah, I mean, Uh, it, it
1: makes sense in
0: its context. The first one is really kind of on point, but I think I like that second one a little bit more.
1: Yeah. All right, so that's our technical side of the film. Our cast, I want to mention... I mean, there's several, but I'll mention some of our main ones here. Christina Marcellic, she is a Spanish actress. She played the main role of Betty, who was our soprano singer, who gets put into the role of Lady Macbeth due to a, an accident. She actually played opposite love interest in a Tom Hanks film. I have no, I've never Whoa. seen this film.
0: What, what? Which film?
1: It's called Every Time We Say Goodbye. It was never, never one of his enough. first dramatic roles. Okay. And it was a tank. It was in a I believe it was an Israeli film and it had a moderate budget, like close to four million and box office wise, I don't think it made three hundred thousand. Wow. Yeah. So that just goes to show, you know. Keep at it, kids. If you're Tom Hanks,
0: it doesn't matter what kind of shit you start with. You'll end up having a career if you're Tom Hanks.
1: Yeah, but I wrote down a couple other films. I mean, I, unless you're familiar with her, I'd say more memorable role. Like, I have never seen her in anything else.
0: I took a quick look through her filmography to see if there was anything that, that would jump out at me. Yeah. There wasn't, and I kind of like, oh, this is probably the movie for her, considering it's connected to Argento.
1: Yeah, and she was relatively young he purposely wanted an actress under the age of 21 he said that the first lady macbeth and Verdi's macbeth i looked it up she was actually like 18 19 years old so he wanted someone to kind of play close to that age he looked all over italy couldn't find an actress he went to spain and that's where he found christina and according to a an article or actually a book a gentleman wrote it's called profundo argento which mm-hmm. means deep argento he says that Christina is the hardest actress he's had to work with. And I'll, I'll get into all those details later on. But our next character in this film is Ian Charlson. Um, he plays the character of Marco, which is the director of the opera in this film. Oh, right. Okay. Right. And I would mentioned to you off, off the recording here a little while ago that his character is a reflection of Argento, especially during that time period because uh, he was approached to do, like I said, operas. But he didn't he didn't want to. So there's a little snippet in the film where there's a piece of dialogue that kind of reflects that like uh, an Italian horror director trying to Mm -hmm. do an opera should stick to it what he knows Uh, anyway he was in pretty interesting films he was in Gandhi he was the priest in Gandhi okay yeah and that kind of inspired uh, Argento to cast him because he was also known as being a pivotal part of the chariots of fire film he played a really important role in that film Um, those were the two films that Argento was like I need him Another reason because Ronnie Taylor worked on Gandhi. He's also known for working on Greystroke, The Legend of Tarzan, way back in the day. So he's been in some pretty cool films. This is actually his last film, which comes with The Curse of Macbeth a little bit. He got into a car accident during the filming of this. He got some blood tests, came back HIV positive, and it was just a few years later he died of AIDS. So um, Mm -hmm. kind of unfortunate. He said he kind of knew that he had HIV before that incident, but that's kind of where I guess he, he came out and announced it. But uh, anywho, Urbano Barberini, he plays Inspector Alan Santini in this film. He's been in some pretty cool films. He was in Casino Royale as the character Tamelli. That's the uh, Daniel Craig Casino Royale. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. He was in Demons. Oh, wow, okay, that was him. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's, he's been in some more recent films. Cool. I wrote down he was in, um, it looks like a sci-fi fantasy film called Gore 1 and 2. Yeah, he's he's pretty cool, interesting. He was a handsome gentleman back in the day. Daria Nicolodi, she is known for being Dario Argento's partner in real life. I guess they split up prior to this film, like a couple years prior. She really didn't want to be in this film, but her character, she said she liked her character's outcome in this film. Which um, was
0: dope, we'll get to super it Super dope, yeah, but don't want to spoil dope. too
1: much But she is the mother of his Daughter, Aja Argento Who's been in a lot of his films Actually, she was in the church She was in uh, one of my favorites too, Stendhal Syndrome, I think she was in Sleepless, she was in a lot of cool yes. shit She's been in a film with Michael Pitt Who played uh, Mason Verger She's been in a lot of cool shit. So, in the film, she plays Mira, which is kind of a, I guess, a motherly figure to Betty. She's her agent, but she's known for being in Argento's films, Deep Red, you know, Suspiria. I'm looking at
0: this cast list. Yeah, and a lot of Italians. I, well, no, not just that, but I feel like there was more characters in this in the movie, but I don't know. Maybe I just not kept getting lot, them confused really. for each other or something. As I'm looking at this, I'm like, I thought there was twice as many characters at this, but yeah, I, there really wasn't.
1: No, I mean, it just looked like it with, I guess, crew members and the way they crowded people in scenes. But yeah, she said that a part of her being in this role was the fact that any time she was in Argento's films, acted in them, they usually killed it at the box office. So yeah, she was in Deep Red. She was in Suspiria. She was in uh, Lucio Fulci's Beyond, The Door Part Two, another couple of Argento films, Inferno, Tenebra, Phenomena with Jennifer Connelly, I mentioned. And more recently, Mother of Tears. She had some, I won't say, harsh things to say about being in this film, but you could tell like she and Argento did not get along during that time period. <laughs> Anywho, Carolina Cataldi-Tassoni, she plays Julia. She was like the wardrobe mistress in the film. Oh, okay. She had a pretty cool sequence. She was known for being a model, actually, and she was in Demon's Tool, which Argento helped produce, and that's why he put her in this film. She was also in the 1988 Phantom of the Opera Dario Argento's oh, okay, opera, right. yeah, and Mother of Tears. Antonella Vitali, she played Miriam. She was a love interest, I guess, of Marco. She didn't have a big part. She gives him that refrain about horror directors and his reviews. That's that. But she was in The Church, another one of our Argento productions. William McNamara, he was Stefano. He had, I guess he was a love interest of Betty. He's an American actor, which is weird, because I think they dubbed his fucking voice. They dubbed most of these voices in the American release of this film, yeah. <laughs> the English version. And you can tell it big time, which is weird because, like, say he's an American actor. I don't know why they dubbed his voice. He plays Stefano. He was in a film with the Coreys, Feldman and uh, Haim, oh, Dream a Corys. Little Dream. Yeah, he was engaged to uh, Erica Leniak. She was in... Uh, oh, no shit. I think Baywatch. And yeah. Think it was it Beverly Hill? Billy's the movie? Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm talking
0: about. Mm hmm. Yeah. But oh he's, my God. I need to rewatch that movie. That's a fantastic movie. Yeah. He was and in a like film with uh, Bader.
1: Yeah, dude. He was in a film with Tom Bergen and her. I think that's where they become kind of like a hit. A film called Chasers. But he was known for playing a part in the film Copycat. It was like a 90s film. That's kind of where he, he was kind of making his ground in the 90s. Handsome guy. Barbara Capusti. She is Signora Albertini. She has a bit part in this film. I think she's one of the uh, the crew members. Anywho, she was uh, more known for the film Cemetery Man, I mentioned earlier, Stage Fright, a really cool giallo, uh, The Church, and Lucio Fulci's New York Ripper. Michel Sovi, he played Inspector Daniel Sove. like I said, had a really big part in this film. He's actually the director of The Church, Stage Fright, and Cemetery Man. He oh, and Argento used to collaborate a lot in the 80s and 90s. That's why nice. he put him in this film. And I uh, put down Francesca Cusola. She played Alma as a little girl in this film. She did apparently a lot of Italian TV, and she worked with a lot of American actors, believe it or not. Huh. Yeah, I kind of looked it up. I didn't write them down. But I was like, that's kind of interesting. But Is anywho, she
0: still working? or
1: I, No. Okay. I, it's kind of like um, our main actress, Christina Marcelic. Mm-hmm. She doesn't really act anymore. She's I think she helps with a production company, mm-hmm. so she more or less helps on that front. But anyway, yeah, that's pretty much rounds out the main cast i mean there's some other bit parts in this film there's the maestro he's actually a um a hungarian composer he's oh yeah the main maestro he's actually a composer cool. yeah so they use a real composer you can hear some dubbed in voices for the actual opera singing parts in this and that film. was me yeah that was me and tyler That's i was why the we're soprano really <laughs> in this
0: movie. uh i was the contralto
1: yeah you nailed it dude yeah you know uh, no not really <laughs> but uh any i didn't write them down but i think one of them was an american singer Hmm. anyhow i should have wrote them down but it's not a big deal but yeah this is um opera this is opera this is your cast
0: oh and let's see a warning before we get into the how did that make you squeal lots
1: of violence is a very violent film it is pretty
0: violent it's kind of stretched out this movie not to cast too much judgment on it before the squealing but it does feel a little bit longer than it is
1: it clocks so in it, at an hour 47 it's paced but
0: there's intense violent sequences here
1: yeah, and there i think you hit a good point with the like the upbeat parts of the film mm-hmm. where you can kind of feel like maybe a little bit of a lull then it hits those beats and it bumps up you right. kind of you kind of can
0: feel when the beats come in oh yeah they uh, drop the beat yeah <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh,
0: but it is some kind of intense violence Right there's some um, gore. There's a little bit of language. Some
1: There is a scene a of bit breasts. Nudity, yeah, which I I'm not hating. Two
0: scenes of breasts. I think.
1: Yeah, there was there was some boobs. There was some fondling too in this film. Oh yeah. Some intense scenes in terms and of like weird, death like, scenes. Stalking yeah, creepy stuff. stalking POV shot style. Mm. Yeah, I mean that's I mean unless What's you don't a, like operas, I suppose. I guess, not, yeah. You know,
0: if you're not a fan of Verity's Macbeth, Macbeth yeah, but. if you
1: believe in the superstition that follows it,
0: we'll get to that. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, no doubt Yeah, that's about all I can think of So should we get into how we...
1: You want to squeal on
0: this, baby? You want to squeal about this? Yeah, I'm ready to squeal Tell these people how we feel By how we squeal Give
1: Uh, them the the real squeal deal
0: Yeah Alright, let's do it How does that make you squeal?
1: I'm ready to squeal
0: Yeah, I mean, as I said earlier This might be your first, so This is where we talk about the podcast as, yeah. after we've been sitting here smoking for a bit uh <laughs> that's what we do or not talk about the podcast talk about the movie I mean, we, talk, we talk all about it. it we talk Let's about the movie about, i'm just i'm kind of all tripped over no my words because i'm kind of excited that i finally watched a fucking dario argento movie
1: well i'm excited for you too you know because outside of you know talking about some of the films that we haven't you know in common as far as our likes and some of the films that we both enjoy outside of our own main interests etc this is kind of in my wheelhouse in terms of the horror that I was getting reintroduced to in the 2000s. I had never n- even knew Italians kind of really fucked with horror films until I was introduced to Argento and and all the names I mentioned earlier, Bava and Martino and all that stuff. Yeah, once I took an interest to Argento, this w- is easily in my top three in terms of my favorite Argento films. Arguably maybe my favorite. Yeah, I guess getting into the jizz of this film...
0: Well, I was going to say I... I said, uh, going into this, I was like, man, we still haven't done an Argento movie. We still really haven't. I mean, we did Jess Franco's Dragon. Yeah, photo, I mean, it's... it's Which borders on some wheelhouse of the stuff a little bit, that, yeah. that you, you dig on when you talk about this sort of shit. But yeah, kind of the
1: euro exploitation, yeah.
0: But not quite there. And so, no. I'm like, man, I know we need to get to it. And I'm like, so it's all up to you. Like, give me an Argento. Like, I know that the normal go-to, of course, is Suspiria, but
1: yeah i mean it just it was per chance maybe it was coincidental that the roxy played it here back in october and so like i said i did the mini review and i was like well that would be kind of cliche i guess almost like oh let me introduce you to susperia i feel like that's yeah it's probably not a bad entry point but sometimes you got to go in through a different angle and i felt like this one might be a little bit more appropriate especially to what we do
0: i don't think you realized how much that this movie i was going to dig on it from the get-go maybe you did shit i don't know yeah. But ravens play a huge part yes, they with do. the opening all centering on just camera angles on a fucking raven cawing. Yeah, and um, even. And I dig Corvid's in general, ravens especially. Have four of them flying on a fucking tattoo up my
1: arm. Like... You know, it ties back into our podcast with. Uh, I mean, it across the spectrum with horror with Edgar Allan Poe, The Raven. Even goes back into the. We talked about it several times now since my dad actually recommended it, but the film The Raven. The use of Ravens is huge, especially in in the opera house. And I'm just going to really quick name off the things that
0: fucking really stood out to me. Because I don't think you realized how much it pulled me in. There was that. There was The Metal. Yeah, dude. Hell yeah. No idea. Okay, well, The Metal, because it was surprising. Because it came after a lot of one of the other things that pulled me in. I knew it was called Opera. But I didn't know it was Verity's Macbeth. I dig Macbeth, not a fan of Verity. Got to hear a lot of Verity yeah. in the course of this movie. Super dug everything that I heard. Little known fact at one point, I was studying to be a music teacher. That's pretty awesome. Had to listen to a lot of classical music at one point, so definitely have gotten down on some Verity. I'm probably going to listen through Macbeth Just at happy. some point now. Yeah, dude.
1: You know, and Argento even talked about the fact that during that time period, he was kind of in a dark mood, like almost a brooding mood in a way. And he wanted to tackle, like I said, an opera. He figured maybe Rigoletta. But then he got the opportunity to, you know, kind of incorporate Verdi's Macbeth into it because, you know, Verdi also did Rigoletta and La Triviata.
0: And there was one other thing that pulled me in. I kind of mentioned it already, but I glossed over it really quickly. But it was also the one thing in this movie that pulled me out because it was not realistic in the slightest. There's no way in the world you are going to have that many people casually saying Macbeth behind the stage at a theater without somebody (laughs) telling them to shut the fuck up. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of
1: commotion going on in that theater, dude.
0: I am not the biggest theater nerd of all time, but I have been involved in some theater in my time in college and high school and stuff. And the Macbeth thing is very much... It's almost more than a superstition. It's almost just part of the culture. If you don't know what I'm talking about, there's different levels of strictness that people adhere to. Yes. But at the very least, you don't say Macbeth behind the scenes of a production. Right.
1: You know, here's the thing, too. I know that some of these directors, Argento being no stranger to this, he incorporated that kind of stuff into it. He wanted there to be that bad luck element in this film, like the contrasts in characters, the contrast in the fact that the main character she was granted i guess a chance through an unfortunate series of events for another person so it was already kind of you know this weird shadow kind of casting already over this mm-hmm. opera
0: and i like that they even bring up the fact that there's kind of a curse associated with it yeah but the reality of the situation is is it's not a secret like everybody who works in the theater knows the curse and the more realistic portrayal is somebody saying Macbeth and somebody telling them to shut up Ooh, or, tell them, or yeah. trying to fucking initiate or, you know, make them go fucking cleanse themselves somehow Yeah. in one of the different either spit over your left shoulder or go outside and turn around three times and say Macbeth or, we're actually going to pause this because I want to show you this Okay. this is why it pulled me in it goes straight back to my youth I've mentioned before that I'm a giant Black Adder fan yeah, yeah um, And in season three, the episode Sense and Sensibility, they parody the Macbeth superstition and cleansing ritual. Nice. So I watched that as a young age. Me and my friends always have referred to it as the Scottish play because of that. Yeah. I've said Macbeth more right now in this room than I've probably said total in my life. And we read through Macbeth in one of my... British literature classes and i read the role of macbeth in that class and i've probably already said it more times right now because we just the scottish play was so ingrained and we didn't even really adhere to superstition it was just more fun to play along with it than not for the people that do adhere to that superstition we also kind of just wanted to be kind to them because like i said it's
1: almost beyond superstition it's almost part of the culture it has become i mean it's it's kind of a unique association game i suppose of sorts and how superstitious you can get with things. But yeah, this Macbeth, no stranger to that at all. So we're going to pause this real quick
0: and I'm going to give you a look into yeah, you'll one get a of reaction my favorite little clips from my childhood and why it helped pull me so much more into this movie. And we can get a
1: reaction from one you. One question before we go in. Yeah. Is Rowan Atkinson in this? Yes. Yes. I'm sold.
0: There you go. That was awesome. Also, I think I said Sense and Sensibility, which the actual name of the episode is Sense and Senility. Senility. Oh,
1: yeah. <laughs> That's
0: funny. Uh, anyway.
1: But no, it was fun. I'm a huge fan of Ron Atkinson from my childhood. Not from Blackadder, but Mr. from Bean. Mr. Bean. Fuck yeah, dude. So it was nice seeing him uh, use his comedic performance vocally in this one. It was a lot of fun, man. That's funny. I enjoyed it.
0: If you like Roan Atkinson, highly recommend Blackadder, at least season two through four. I'm a big fan, and even I have a hard time with season one sometimes, but his character isn't nearly as quick-witted.
1: Yeah, sometimes you have to plow through those episodes. Mm-hmm. But no, that was fun, man. So yeah, it lends back into Macbeth, for sure. Go check it out. I enjoyed that. I appreciate you showing me that. If I remember,
0: I'll link it on the website on this episode. Yeah, that will be
1: fun. Okay. So those who you know don't have access, we can give it to you. But I guess, yeah, leading back into um, with the Macbeth story, too, Argento wanted to use the story of Macbeth because of its, you know, its violence, I guess, too. Because, as he said, it's kind of a vicious story of, you know, kings kind of being traitorous. and
0: Oh, most of the people get the fuck killed out of
1: them. Yeah, it's just like a really violent play. And he said some of Verity's operas were kind of violent. And he said operas in general can kind of, you know, do that in a vocal form. He said that's what kind of separates it from cinema. And Anyway, it's in- interesting that they're using that particular opera, and then all those series of events start to happen with our main actress, involving somebody who's a fanatic of hers.
0: So part of the interesting thing about this movie, it was kind of a whodunit.
1: Yeah, and that is one of the uh, traits of a giallo in general. It's And so as,
0: a, as I, I was trying to piece it together, and I was trying to figure it out, And I got it fucking wrong.
1: Yeah? Oh,
0: man. I finally... God, what was it? There was a scene where I was like, okay, this is the person I think it is. It might have been right after when they attacked the ravens in the dress. I can't remember for sure. Oh, no, it was right after the attack of the costume lady. Okay, Julia. Yeah, I was like, okay, this is who I think it is. I'm like, I think I have it all together. And i thought it was i can't think of his name
1: but the kind of more rotund gentleman with the okay. mustache yeah yeah i can't remember his character's name but yeah he's the one who announces things a lot in the film yeah and like mara has got into a great accident that guy yeah i thought it was him nope <laughs> N- not quite not quite but that's his thing about these whodunit killer movies in the in perspective of the killer the pov shots and whatnot you start to do that. You start to kind of like... Who might be able to do this?
0: A lot of the suspects do get eliminated pretty quickly, though. Oh, yeah, they do. <laughs> yeah, they do. Because I do feel like the first couple things sort of hint towards the boyfriend, but then he gets killed rather quickly. Yeah, he gets... Like, before you can even make up your mind on whether it could be him or not, he's off.
1: Yeah, he's gone. He's um, gone pretty quick. By the way, this is the spoiler section, so fuck you guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, this film is known for its, its death sequences... And there's usually a tip-off, because you start hearing that metal kick in.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, What what did you say the name was again? Uh,
1: Still Grave. I'm
0: going to have to look that shit up. I was like, oh, fuck. What? Metal? Yeah, metal. Metal. Yeah, I mean, it's
1: good. I mean, it's Argento in the 80s. He was using a lot of metal in his films, which was really cool.
0: Which is also another neat thing. We pointed out, and I can talk about more here in a second, how there seems to be at least a little bit of influence from Phantom of the Opera. Oh, no doubt. Just little touches here and there. But it makes sense that he would later do an adaptation of Phantom of the Opera, based on what I saw in this. I'm a pretty big Phantom of the Opera fan. By the way, I love the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, some of the different movie adaptations, obviously going all the way back to the Universals with Lon Chaney. Yeah. And then going forward, even like the Gerard Butler.
1: There's somebody that we have covered during our slasher run who was in Phantom of the Opera, and that's Robert England.
0: And the Gaston Leroux novel. Nice. Now, there's an interesting connection between metal and the novel the metal horns right right oh yeah oh and also tying in i guess to italian superstition the metal horns first made big when ronnie james dio introduced it and his inspiration because before that it was what people would throw up in the air was usually either just like a fist Mm -hmm. or the peace symbol because ozzy would go around fucking flashing the peace symbol at everybody if you go watch old black sabbath performances Fucking Ozzy's up on stage just like, peace, guys, fucking peace. Yeah. Which is kind of weird, because then fucking Iron Man.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of their, their songs were very political. And dark uh, and... Yeah, foreboding. Well, what I mean... War-themed,
0: it, of course. Right, and I guess they weren't ever advocating war. They were more talking about the horror, so exactly like, so peace would make sense. But it still seemed <laughs> out of place, right? Right,
1: right, right, exactly, given the, um, I guess, some of the image... You know, that, that is used and incorporated in the music as well.
0: So Dio brings in the mono cornuto. Okay. The, Sweet. Uh, the hand horns. Because of Italian superstition having to do with the evil eye. And just bad luck and such in general. And it's because his grandma used to do it all the time. Oh, nice. His Italian grandmother. And you can put the horns up to ward off the evil eye, when things that are cursed or can bring bad luck are mentioned, or if you think somebody's trying to give you the evil eye. Yeah. Or you can point them to give the evil eye. Oh,
1: shit.
0: In the novel, of Phantom of the Opera, I mean, hardly, I think, even ten pages into it, to reinforce the fact that this is how it's used, when the Phantom is mentioned to the ballerinas for the first time, Gaston Leroux actually describes a couple of the ballerinas throwing up damn the horns
1: the horns <laughs> <laughs> yeah ballerinas are kicking that shit off so metal phantom of the opera wow. opera that's really awesome mostly gave an origin story i it. love it
0: yeah mostly i just wanted throughout my history of the horns
1: so you know <laughs> ballerinas aren't just pretty they're metal yeah they're metals fuck ballerinas
0: are metal as fuck
1: <laughs> that's awesome man
0: well i did want to really quick you if don't you don't mind, mind oh, just fine. so that that's we fine. don't While we're still talking about the fact that this does kind of tie to Phantom of the Opera some. Yeah, for sure. at least things that I noticed, being a big Phantom of the Opera fan, obviously set in an opera. Yes. That's a big thing. The perpetrator getting rid of the main star to bring in his choice. Yes, that's exactly right. That's another big thing. Although used differently in the third act the use of secret passages around the opera becomes a big thing.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Although the mask in the novel is different and is actually a big black full face mask, I believe that uh, most people think of the Phantom of the Opera mask as being the normal, the white half mask affair. Right, right. Which kind of mirrors the mask that one would need after the injuries that the killer receives at the end.
1: You know, that was a decision that Barberini he made the decision whether or not to like have a scar across his face or lose an eye. And he chose, I want to lose an eye. And so that would make perfect sense. Oh, and I felt like there was one other thing. But,
0: I mean, and those are all still just slight coincidences, but I feel like it's enough of them throughout the entire movie that... Plus the fact that there's just still sort of that vague connection between their paths, kind of, with the Phantom in the book and the musical and all that, having taught her. Instead, this one has connections to the mother. Right.
1: Oh, yeah. And I guess a teaching... (laughs) It's weird, that connection. I'm not sure
0: how much I actually believe what he said, by the way.
1: Yeah. I I know what you're getting at, too. There is that weird flashback of sequences. I, I like how they incorporate like this throbbing sensation with the brain and the flow of blood. you mm-hmm. You're not sure if who it's coming from actually either. I mean, it, sometimes it, it almost feels like that's what the killer is feeling or like the I guess the adrenaline and all that stuff that's pumping through before the kill. But then again, you don't know if it's the victim either. So that was kind of a unique portrayal in this film. He used some really cool angles and shots in this fucking film too. I think one of them is a the peephole sequence. I mean, this film is known for that. Right. I'm going to ask, do you happen to know... And it was something I was noticing about the way he used camera angles okay, and stuff. Do yeah.
0: you happen to know if Argento has ever written a novel?
1: I, you know, I'm not sure. To be 100% honest, I'm not sure if he has. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if he has, but I honestly, I don't know for sure.
0: It was something that... Kubrick kind of did this with The Shining, and I kind of touched on it for a second. And something that was much more noticeable in this is that I felt that Argento wasn't using the camera to try to show you real life he was using a camera to show you the story mm-hmm. and he used it in a lot of the same ways that i felt like one would narrate a story i first really picked up on it in the first big opening shot of the theater right in the opera house right of the opera house and the camera sort of i guess on a crane it would have been right exactly it was suspended somehow above the crowd And before everything settles in on the action and everything that actually has to go on, the camera shows up like 10 seconds before anything that you need to know goes on actually happens. And he slowly pans it around the room and shows you just sort of the atmosphere and the crowd. And you get all the sights and sounds of the crowd. And it felt to me the same way, like if you had a scene change in a book, how the author might start in and be like, the lavish golden room opened up, da-da-da-da-da, and this is where the the star stepped out into the stage, which is when the camera finally swings all the way around. You get a second of lingering on the stage, which is kind of like establishing that space, and then things come out and start to happen. And that's by no means the only time he does it in the movie. It felt to me like he used the camera to first to sort of show you the space and to inhabit it and then to bring the people through it.
1: Oh yeah. The interesting thing about that opera house too was he initially wanted to use La Scala in Milan but because it runs productions throughout the year there was no way he could fit trying to shoot this film during its run. You know, So anyhow, they started scouting and they went to Parma and they found this particular theater it's called Teatro Reggio He said that he moved there for like two months so that way they could film. Anyhow, there was a really cool thing they did with some of the uh, shots inside of the the opera house where you get this panning 360 degrees and Mm -hmm. whatnot. They took out the chandelier and they made this platform with a rotating camera. Even some of the animatronics they use with the Ravens, some of them are mechanical where you see them flying around in the opera house too. The person who was in charge of the, uh, the animatronics, I think his name is Stivaletta, He talked about they needed like this head size, you know, ravens they had to construct. He says so that they can put their hands inside of it to operate them and also to put cameras inside of them, too.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah.
1: So he's like the trick for using practical effects, because at that time they didn't really have the technology for CG. So they had to use practical effects. But the raven shots, some of them are fucking really dope, man.
0: Yeah, there were some really cool things with the Ravens. Oh, God, something we probably should have warned about, too. There's animal violence. There is. Because I was about to say one of the saddest things for me in the movie was fucking
1: dickhead killer. Yeah, he slashes a couple of the Ravens. Mm-hmm. But those were uh, were animatronics.
0: We're still dancing around the plot quite a bit. Yeah, we are. I don't say we continue to dance around it fully, I want to take this moment to encourage people to go watch this movie. Oh, for of. sure.
1: I mean, even if we've it's already weird. talked
0: about a couple of spoilers, but we've yeah. sort of jumped around a couple of the big but, main things so far. But.
1: Oh, yeah, no, we'll, we'll definitely get into them. But, uh, you know, I mean, if this is your entry into Argento, I think it's actually a pretty decent launching pad. It might not be the pivotal one, but it's not a bad entry into it. But I will say this more or less with the plot, too. You know, we talked about Betty being the fact that she gets the part of Lady Macbeth because of the unfortunate accident of Mara Chakova, who you never see, you hear her voice, even in the beginning, you know, all the way until she gets hit. But that was all apparently planned, you know. Mm-hmm. She gets the call, Betty, from an unknown caller. You you're going to be Lady Macbeth. Yeah, you're Macbeth. And then all those people start flooding in. Get Mira. Ready. It was like, damn, everybody came over. Get the director, ready, her boyfriend, yeah. And then she gets thrust into it, like, almost immediately. She has, like, this uncertainty. So, you know, she's young. She has uncertainty about the part. But then you do get to see how those ravens interact, too, with her, with the killer, how they identify. An interesting thing about the number, they use crows. They use like 120 to 140.
0: Didn't a shit ton escape?
1: Yeah, he said They by the end of the film, they, they were left with 60. He said a lot of them stayed inside of the opera house itself, like they couldn't collect them. <laughs> you know, so he said there's crows inhabiting Parma's opera house, he says, because of us.
0: Which, by the way, they're super smart. And yes, they, they are. are dude mentions about them being able to remember faces is absolutely true not only can they remember faces they can actually describe
1: faces to each other yeah so identification Mm -hmm. yeah it's really cool you know even like you were talking about the beginning of the film the very first shot you see is the eye of the raven in the perspective coming out of its eye inside the opera house with a conductor and i think that's a unique way of opening up a film too
0: now i do have to say one other thing fuck from really the get-go that yeah. it didn't bug me especially later in the movie he definitely got to play with his artistic vision more and it was definitely not as apparent, but this does look like a movie from 1987.
1: Oh yeah, and for in sure. that
0: opening scene, especially, I was like, "Am I watching fucking TV or something? Like, what the fuck is this?" Yeah, I'm like, "This isn't. This is Dario Argento, Argento right? Like, this is going to be. This is supposed to be a fucking beautiful movie. What the fuck am I looking at right now?" <laughs> like, yeah, because it's it, cool it's, that it's on a Raven, but
1: I know what you mean. But it is kind of like, what's happening? What's going on? Because you don't really get a perspective outside of like a, a weird third person yeah there, there are that, some things like when everything thing.
0: was like in full lighting and stuff like uh, with the cameras and the technology yeah. of the time it oh just... yeah i
1: mean they had to work with what they had ronnie taylor talked about the fact like with the lighting in argento said that it was just hard to light that theater because it's so big I mean, he said they had to use like low lit fixtures in all the boxes and all throughout so that the way you can get this effect of its greatness you know mm-hmm. It was a challenge with this film. This wasn't an easy production by any stretch.
0: And I know that things usually aren't filmed in order, so I don't know at what point that opening sequence was actually filmed.
1: Right, yeah. But it
0: does feel like everything past that point gets better. Like, they learn their lesson from the first scene, because I felt like everything was just too bright that first scene, and it honestly makes it look like a fucking TV show.
1: It does, because it is really bright the first thing you get.
0: I mean... Even ten, fifteen minutes in the movie, it kind of feels like things get a little bit darker.
1: I think that's like and maybe it that's the of, to play of it with too. some of the
0: lights and stuff yeah. later on. Is that the uh, movie, there's some the, really the darkness he come. definitely does some interesting things with, just like splashes of like red light across different areas to invoke different. Yeah, emotions, he's totally so. known for
1: doing that with the use of red, particularly. But yeah, you know, we talked about the things with the metal and how it kicks off these death sequences and. I guess real briefly, with you know, because we are in spoiler section, but Mira's death sequence. I talked about the peephole with the gun. Um, was oh
0: my god, dude! How the fuck did they do that? Do you have notes? On I, that? I do. Yeah, I know exactly how they did that. Because I know that you were talking. This was almost. I mean, this was had to be basically all practical, effects okay? For the most part.
1: This gets into Dario Nicolodi, wh- who played Mira. She said that Argento told her how they were going to pull this off and part of it was they had to use this explosive dynamite on the back of her head they had to construct that so that way you can get the blowout right you know and she said she was nervous and because they had split their relationship you know they were partners for a long time but anyhow she thought maybe it was a cruel way for dario Argento to like her in this film just like a squib yeah like an so, overloaded
0: squib on the back of the um, head I mean, that's okay, the thing. Are, are squibs much of a thing at this point? Are they sort of pioneering some of these things? Like, I have to admit, somebody has to have done something like this beforehand, but are they even known as
1: squibs at this point? I, You know, I don't know. That's a, We need to look into that. I mean, that'd be pretty cool. Nicolotti said that Rosario Prestepino, he was the uh, key makeup artist, he would, like reassured her that they were going to cut like the dynamite use in half. So what they did for that sequence is, you know, they made this, like... I guess it's a little mold in the back of her head where they put that explosive and blood and all that stuff in there. And then for the peephole, she said they used a condom full with blood so that way it popped in her face right. uh, to give that effect of her eye. And, you know, they showed how they, they made that prosthetic makeup for the eye, wound, and all that stuff. But... The actual bullet going through the peephole... That's what I was
0: mostly curious about. Okay. Everything else I can figure out, some sort of squib or something right. to do. But,
1: but yeah, they were, they actually used an explosive that she was <coughs> super scared of. It was I think they did it in one take, if I'm not mistaken. But Ronnie Taylor, the DP for this film, he talked about they used a high-speed camera for the time. He can't remember the exact... He said the exact speed for it. He couldn't remember exactly. But anyhow, they had this cylinder chamber made out, and they just put the bullet on this padding that projected it it really fast. Mm -hmm. And so they used that high-speed camera to capture that going through. So it wasn't
0: actually, like, bullet fast, but it was faster than normal.
1: Yeah, fast enough to give that effect of it going through that chamber. Yeah, and then, of course, when it hits and then you see her eye pop, and it hits that telephone, too. It's like, damn, that was awesome. That's something that I'll never forget about that film. was that particular sequence. That was sweet. Another thing I want to mention, too, to device using in this film are the taped needles, pins, that get put underneath that Betty's eyes. That was also eyes.
0: really fucking cool. Wow, yeah, that was really cool. And also makes the poster make more sense.
1: Argento said he wanted to hand those out to audience members who got squeamish during death sequence, who would close their eyes. He said he would imagine them having that underneath their eyes, so that way, in case they try to close their eyes, they had to keep them open or else they get fucked up. But anyhow, he's like, that wasn't practical, so we put it in the movie instead. So
0: that actually brings me to the praises I want to sing of this movie, is that the killer's stalking and terrorizing of yeah. Betty is on par with... The terrorizing uh, RV invasion and terrorizing of the family in Hills Have Eyes. Oh, yes. It's just as terrorizing as, like, the home invasion it's dreadful. in Henry.
1: Yeah. Very reminiscent. It's very brutal. It's very vicious. I don't think it is hyper realistic as some of those other no. you know, movies, but it still gives you that sense of dread and terror,
0: you know? And she's just so helpless against it. Yeah, her. she can't do he shows fuck up, all about it. I mean, takes away her ability to fight back and makes her watch. (laughs) And gradually takes away all these people associated with her one by one, literally in front of her eyes.
1: Cool that you are bringing this up is Argento wanted this film to have no love in it. Like, no attachment to, like, love. So anytime she got close to somebody or somebody got close to her, they were gone shortly after. Which led to
0: some super cool death sequences. Like we said, the bullet through the peephole is amazing.
1: Yeah, classical. I even think Stefano getting all knifed up That was fucking brutal Dude
0: stefano getting knifed up was cool but that was the first time that you get the needles under the eyes yeah i thought that that made more of an impression and i thought that that was the best time that they did the blood running down her face because of it yeah because i mean a little bit runs down every time but that first time oh yeah
1: i think that was too to give that impression like this is intense but yeah i mean all those themes lead up Uh, we mentioned or i mentioned how argento was influenced by thomas harris's book red dragon And that whole end sequence with the exchange of bodies in the burning building, it was totally inspired by that. Mm -hmm. But you're right, Orion Pictures, they wanted the film to end right there, and they didn't want the whole other sequence after that to happen. Well, and not just that,
0: but as I mentioned in Red Dragon, the book, the end, you just have Will just sort of wistfully suddenly reminiscing on a trip that he made to a civil war battle and what the meaning of being Uh haunted is and who is truly haunted and is just really this kind of weird offshoot that's supposed to sort of hammer home some themes of the book but my opinion is probably the weakest part of the red dragon book this almost made red dragon make more sense because the end of this is a little bit of the same Mm -hmm. to spoil the very very end Betty at the end of it all kind of is broken and just wanders off into the field to kind of find some sort of solace yeah like a serenity a trapped lizard yeah. and that's how it ends and it's a very surreal moment too because nobody really is. is like
1: there's a lot of people on the scene a and nobody's lot. like a what fuck the fuck is she doing it's a weird wave almost closing a film too like that was baldy the way he ended that you know on that kind of note i'm still not quite sure what it means for some of the
0: stuff in the movie but it immediately ho- hit an emotional chord with me, and I thought it was a very poignant note to end on. It was. And it was a very emotional moment, just her breaking and finding this little bit of solace and being able to save this one thing, finally. When
1: they have that kind of reveal moment, and she learns the story of her mother and that guy's connection...
0: By the way, I don't believe that. Nothing in this movie gives me reason to believe his character, I don't think.
1: Yeah, that's hard to believe, of course, that's what it's trying to portray. But she even has those flashback sequences of this woman tied up, watching other women be fondled and perhaps oft. I think there's moments of whether you're not sure if it's from the perspective of the killer or if it's from the perspective of Betty, until the film kind of gets closer to an end, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of a a weird perverse way of dealing with this uh, i don't know for her like a revelation okay i'm not like my mother but i'm almost forced into the situation to become off like her in this se- weird sexual say of masochistic way mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that was kind of a unique entry into the film
0: well, and i thought it was a weird commentary on him too and, and actually a really deep look into maybe not realistically i don't i'm don't not fucking studied in this shit, but from other things I've seen, maybe a realistic look at how his psyche could form like that, because if his situation played out where he was doing this for her mother, but not getting anything in return, but she still had him in that power and had warped him in that way, then he was still just... Her mother was actively doing that to him, but Betty, not even knowing who he was, yeah, instantly fills that role of the mother not giving him any. <laughs> yeah, it, it could have weird. been a void if he, she just would have known who he was.
1: She does mention, <laughs> you know, during those flashback sequences of the masked man. You know, that's just kind of cliche. You know, who done it? Like you said,
0: yeah, it was neat though.
1: No, I, like I rather enjoy this film. I really do. For the most part, this film is straightforward. Like I said, who done it? Involving. All the shit she has to contend with (laughs) in that hyper-brutal way. There was one other example
0: that came to mind that I have in my notes of how he sort of uses the camera to paint more like a novelist rather than sort of trying to put you in the real. Right. right. And it was actually that very opening sequence where, although I don't like the lighting... You get a point-of-view shot. As you've pointed out before, there's a lot of of point-of-view shots in this movie. It's actually weird because a lot of shots you don't know if it's point-of-view or if it's him examining a space. Good point, yeah. Which almost ratchets up the terror a little bit because you don't know if you have to be afraid for somebody in that space because it could be the killer. But there's other times where he uses the camera just to explore a space and it's not the killer. Oh, yeah. But it always sort of has you on the edge of your seat like, should I be worried about these people? Should I not? But the film opens with a point of view shot from the first lady, Macbeth. But it's, not a, Boba, but it's
1: not a point of view shot. No, it's not. It's, it's really physically
0: not. impossible. She's not walking backwards the entire not time. Not during that sequence. There's no way. It's a point of view shot from the back of her head, which, if you're, yeah, like if over you're describing how a crowd is following this lady, then you're following
1: the crowd, not her. Yeah, exactly. The third person. But the whole action is, is tied crowd. to her. It's really unique. Like I said, his use of shots and his use of colors. This film, too. like It was really cool seeing how they set up those shots. Even when like all about the little girls leading Betty through the air conditioning units, like the old tunnels. The way they did that is they had set up like prop tunnel that they were crawling through. Mm-hmm. And they had this camera mounted above them shooting that sequence. like that. Even the panning of how they got the 360, like the ravens flying in the theater. They had mounted Cameron's... At the feet of the mechanical bird. and oh, okay. Yeah, so that way you could see them attacking and pecking. And all that was mm-hmm. animatronics, too, which was really cool. But it was just really interesting seeing all these unique people, too, who worked on this film and some of their credits along with it. I really didn't know a lot of that stuff prior.
0: No, I was kind of disappointed. I wish we could have got more of a resolution for the Alma storyline.
1: You kind of get left off with her mother and she are at the last performance with the reveal of who the killer is. You know, by the use of the Ravens, Mm -hmm. which is genius, Marco. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Way to go, Marco.
0: Fucking, I was kind of bummed that Marco got killed.
1: He got fucking all sliced up, right? And it was, I think it even lends back to that, like the final sequence with Betty, like how she was very dismissive of a lot of those murders, too. Like Mm -hmm. her boyfriend got murdered, Mira got murdered, Julia got murdered, Marco got murdered, and she was kind of really dismissive about
0: it. So, I'm glad you mentioned that. That was going to be my one big critique of this movie. And almost like, I feel like this movie deserves to be remade. I would like to see it in the hands of somebody else, but somebody handpicked by Argento. Yeah, that would be fine. But kind of like how Sam Raimi handpicked, uh, that did the uh, the remake of Evil Dead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which was fantastic, which we'll talk about some other time. Oh, yeah. um, oh I would yeah. like something like that to happen. But failing that, have Argento remake it with more modern day cameras and lighting effects oh yeah for and sure. being able to you know go back and digitally retint things to really play with it and get some of the mood heightened and even more in some of these scenes and play with it yeah because i think there's potential for that there he does it already he's a fucking master in this movie <laughs> yeah but i think he could even play with even more with how he had already set it up
1: well yeah i say with some of the technology that's but beyond available,
0: that with a lead actress that sells it a little bit better
1: Yeah, and that kind of shows with her inexperience in film. Ronnie Taylor and Argenta both mentioned that, that she was like very capricious and just she didn't follow direction very well and she was very defiant and they just had a really rough time directing her. But she didn't really sell a lot of the Yeah, she wasn't the best the terror she was going through. Yeah. And I think that was like you said, the kind of the dismissive part. It's kind of a weird psychoanalysis, I guess, of her figuring out or maybe coming to realization like those sequences that she's dreaming of, those nightmares she has of mm-hmm. a woman being tied up and the killer. It's like she saw that stuff happen <laughs> and now she's kind of going through it. But how is she reacting to it compared to her mother and I guess her demise and all, you know, it's just how much thought do you put into that in this film. I felt like
0: a lo- it wasn't so much as her building up to breaking, right. as much as she would just instantly turn into Kristen Stewart every time.
1: Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Stiff as a board, and not just her, but also I really didn't like. To be honest, I, I didn't like the, the acting job that uh, the costume designer gal, did.
1: Julia. Yeah, yeah. She hasn't been in a shit ton of films, but you're right. She's kind of I don't know. She's over theatrical in a way. She gets off enough. Whew. I wish they would have
0: shown a little bit more of an aftermath on that, too. Yeah. Because they sort of show the killer going to town, but not
1: much. Yeah, they don't show it. You hear it, and yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what's going on.
0: (laughs) Even though they show some other pretty fucked up things, which just kind of caught me by surprise. I'm like, just show me the aftermath of what's going
1: on there. Yeah. then that's kind of what I think, too, about this film in a way. It's like, knowing that weird twist ending, I suppose, gets thrown into this. The dubbing is kind of shitty in this film. Mm -hmm. Um, I have to say that. You know, I mean, for some of its faults, you know what I mean? I think there's a lot of things to get...
0: Oh, I still thought it was a fan... Even with the that's faults, I'm gonna, I thought it was yeah, a fantastic...
1: That's movie. what I mean. It's like, they, they get overshadowed, those faults, because of its unique death sequences. I think the fact that it's set in that opera house, and you actually get an opera performance, and it's a play on Macbeth. Like I so said, there's elements of Phantom of the Opera.
0: I mean, we haven't said this word yet, but it's a really neat slasher movie.
1: Yeah, it is. And that's like, so that harkens back to some of the, the giallos that are known for that, you know, mm-hmm. like the who done it slashers killers, it's kind of fucking violent, you know. So, it's a good contrast along with the soundtrack. I think it's super solid soundtrack. It's a lot of really
0: interesting ideas we somehow managed to really jump around it, so I really hope that if you haven't seen it yet and you've listened to this point, you decide to go watch it based on all the interest that yeah. I hope we've created in you.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is not his more artistic film. If you want that, check out Which Suspiria. Which is surprising, yeah. because
0: this is actually rather... It is.
1: It's beautiful. It's a beautiful film. But it's not, like, as stylish as Suspiria. I mean, that's yeah. that's apparent. But I think it has a little bit more solid story than uh, Suspiria. I mean, that's my personal opinion.
0: All I know is that after watching this, I'm really excited for when we do get to more Argento. Yeah. And some of the other Italians.
1: Yeah, and he's got some, like I so said, some really badass early films, uh, being Argento. And, like so I said, then the... Other gentlemen I mentioned earlier, Fulci being one of them. He's known for some of the classics, man. Mm-hmm. You know, and the Babas and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, we can't help but eventually delve back into it. Shit, do you have anything else you want to say about this? I sort of ran through my ideas on it. Not necessarily. Like, I mean, for the most part, I think we covered, you know, the gist of what the film's about, some of the ideas of Argento, like knowing the fact that he likes, like, using spaces and those camera angles and giving you. These really cool... I mean, even he likes to use the hand sequences like being his hand Mm -hmm. and stuff. So, I mean, he's heavily involved in his films.
0: The neat thing is he even mixes those up in ways that draw attention to certain things rather than others. There's a lot of times where the hand sequences are direct point of view of the killer, but there's a couple times where it's a third person over-the-shoulder shot and highlighting whatever the item is that the killer's holding or...
1: Yeah, It's just, really
0: neat tricks to draw your eyes to certain things and describe things using the camera.
1: Yeah, I, I really like these films a lot, being like the crossover of crime suspense thrillers blending with horror. It's just a it's really fun film. I mean, I won't say like it, it's lending anything brand new, but it uses some really cool techniques in this film. It really does.
0: And I have to admit, I'm a little bit partial to things that came out in 87, considering that's when I came out of my mom. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> Got him.
1: Yeah, man. So, I mean, this is a way to celebrate your birth year, knowing that this film came out opera. Opera. And like I said, it will always be one of my favorite Argento films. I mean, I, I wouldn't hesitate to introduce this to anybody who's a film fan.
0: That was my getting born motion. Mm, I'll pin them. That's a really weird getting born motion, but it's okay.
1: I would suggest some of those films I mentioned too. Like if you're interested in some other Italian horror, check out Demons. I would highly recommend checking out Demons. The Church is Really Badass and Cemetery Man. Check those out. Nice. So next week, we're, we're doing a something. I'm not
0: sure what we're all doing yet. We're not doing just a straight up movie. So you don't have to watch a movie and get prepared.
1: Yeah, you can relax and enjoy what we have to offer. We're going to do some
0: sort of 50th episode special. Which is also, we didn't even mention this earlier when we were talking about the numbering. It's also technically more than 50 episodes, because we have like three half episodes.
1: Yeah, so I mean, those are some of our... I guess, like I said, if you want to add those in, it'd be like, what, 51 and a half or something? Like 52? Yeah. uh,
0: (laughs) Something like that. So... It's our fucking anniversary special. God damn it.
1: We're celebrating 50. This is our MILF episode.
0: So come celebrate with us. (laughs) In order to celebrate with us, I'm not going to name off all the things that you can listen to us on. You can find us wherever you you listen to your podcasts. If you're listening to this, you probably know how to listen to podcasts already. Yeah, I mean, we have
1: links to all those. uh, So
0: please uh, subscribe to us. On whatever you're listening yeah, to. Yeah, those platforms, right? We, that would be awesome. And then you can keep up to date with the latest.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, like say we're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. At FriedSquerms. Fried squirms, fried squirms fried squirms podcast, podcast. Facebook. Uh, fried fried squirms. squirms. You can email us still at squirmcast at gmail.com
0: we mentioned the website
1: earlier www.friedsquirms.com
0: and since we are coming up to an anniversary i swear i'm going to try to get some time put in and i'm going to do a little bit of revamping i have some ideas yeah i want to see that if i can put into effect on the website maybe a couple of other platforms too and uh you just did a big write-up on the website i'm going to have one coming by the end of the year
1: so sweet yeah so you know we're we're getting a little bit more involved like said, so there's several ways we just mentioned to, to reach out to us let us know what you think give us some suggestions some feedback and know. we love you yeah of course we do we wouldn't be doing this if we didn't
0: peace like Ozzy I'm shaking peace. my peace signs at you we got
1: Ozzy. our signs up and a little bit of the, the oh and whoops right wrong one <laughs>
0: yeah. for ballerinas out out